The Future by Stefan Molyneux Chapter 39 I demanded to be moved from my hospital room. What Cornelius said, we might as well wait. I would be either free or punished within ten days. Ten days to judge a million crimes, a million years, a million defenses. And if I were found not guilty, what what would I do? Would I be accepted? Would I be praised? Would I be revered? Would I be a hero to the low or an inspiration to the average? I have a mind that races in the face of a problem. It's like a circling rat chewing through ropes or chains. It doesn't rest until it breaks into the clear, frees me. I sometimes feel that I am merely along for the ride in my own mind. Fingers larger than the world push me here and there, shield me from rain and flick back the lightning. Destiny is just humility in the face of forces larger than yourself. And I sometimes feel like the finger puppet of the universe, pointing at the future, drawing mankind in a mad rush to... I smile inwardly. If something guides me, it never lets me know the destination. I pay along the way, that's all. I don't feel much anxiety about a judgment or a trial or the consequences. This is a soft universe of tender-hearted children, shielded from the claws of nature by soft blankets and fuzzy bears. They have turned the world into a womb, an amniotic sack of absent beasts. I don't begrudge them that, I suppose. We sharpen our claws for wet work, and they face a desert. (laughs) I don't have much to fear from them, I think. And I wonder... I read a short story when I was in my teens refutation of the cliché that in the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. The blind could hear everything. The one-eyed man had no chance. This world woke a predator in me. I'm not sure how wise that was not to let sleeping jackals lie. Morality is weakness. I think they have that right. They claim to have bulked it up, but it's just gym strength, not street-fighting might. I am still getting the lay of the land, that much I know. I haven't yet matched wits and will with anyone here. There's no point showing your full strength until the boss battle. Other than Cornelius's strange anger, I haven't seen anything here that would even give me pause. I've actually giggled in my mind, imagining the prosecution to come. How different it would be from my day when we pointed cold-eyed ideologues at our enemies, shut them into prison, and... (sighs) The abusers of children. The eugenicists. The 90% reduction hyper-environmentalists. 
the socialists and communists, the gigglers and pointers of the body politic, the leather-bound Puritans and Bible-thumping fetishists, the whole grand crew of ghouls. Oh, how we begged to be discovered. How we yearned for our dark artistry to be unveiled. But how easy it was to evaporate those who closed in on the circles of power. Conspiracy theory. <laughs> what a grand phrase. Who could have imagined that people who loved power and control might ever collude with each other to gain and keep it? Now, they believed the slogans. We just had to say that someone or something threatened democracy. And off they would scamper, baying and sharpening and hunting. I did sometimes miss the old days when we had to actually lift a finger, not just use the magic spells of programmed cliches and child-free hysteria. Maybe I was sent here to toughen them up. Maybe it is they who need to be awakened. I waited for the strange voice, but it was silent. I wanted to goad it into speech, but felt so tired, so tired and so full of strange new hope for the future. If I am from the dueling past, and it is to be swords at dawn, who can beat me? Also, and what could their punishments be, these deeply silly people? Oh, I would miss the food. That tree restaurant was incredible. I can still taste that meal. It makes me wonder what the hell my wife had been serving me all those years. <laughs> I remember one of my advisors, after we launched the war, he was asked by a reporter how he was handling it, and he said, Oh, I'm sleeping like a baby. I wake up every two hours screaming. It was funny, because it was so untrue. It was a story to relate to the sheep, so they could imagine taking center stage in our play called Conscience. We invaded for false pretenses. Welcome to war. That's the whole story. We get too many people. Too many dummies, too many bills to pay, too many dependents. We have to bleed them off. I visited a farm when I was 15 in South Africa, where we had to cull the deer because all the natural predators had been chased off by agriculture. If you don't shoot the deer, the farmer said, they'll just eat all the crops and starve to death, which is much more cruel than being killed in an instant. We had lots of natural predators in the past. Illness, starvation, accidents, infection. But all that had been chased away by modernity. This world seems to have killed them completely, a mass murder of natural limits. The great wars arose from the great peace. Peace and plenty swelled the population. Everyone wants something for free and genuinely believe those who make such mad promises but the devil always gets paid. 
Everything you take that you have not earned will be paid for. The amazing thing about my generation was that we had inherited so much wealth that we could actually shift the burden to the next generation, which we promptly did. I charge for what people demand. They want free things they know I take from others, and they genuinely seem to believe that there will never be a price. That's the wild effect of the fall of religion. No one believes they have a soul anymore, so no one knows how much will be paid for greed. I never take anything that is not willingly offered. Everyone knows that there is no such thing as a free lunch. Beg to have something for nothing. You become nothing. I don't empty people out. I just collect the bill. I have no fear of this modern world. They seem to know nothing of me. They have forgotten I exist. And so I will rule. I fall asleep with a half-smile on my face, as has been my habit for many decades, now many centuries, so that my dreams will be more pleasant. I long ago found that forcing my face into a particular expression pulls my mood behind it at Jane's funeral. I've always been curious about the dreams of powerful men. What did Napoleon see every night? It's almost never recorded. You can never trust anyone, but I would dearly like to know. I have simple dreams of dominance and fellowship. I practice climbing fiery trees, navigating rapids with churning water snakes, crooking elbows and drinking mead with the dwarves and elves of the Senate and Congress, roasting right-wing journalists, the usual. I always know that my dreams are my dreams, and I can almost always wake on command. (laughs) You don't love control like I do and surrender to your own unconscious. But this night, I fell asleep in a hospital room and woke up in a hospital room with my father. I yawned in my dream, just as I did on that day. It's so boring, really, this entirely predictable cycle of life garbage. Yes, my father was a titan. And then he got old and frail and lost his bulk and shrank into a bundle of diapered sticks. And he fell into death because I rose in life and I was there to replace him just as my son was there to replace me. And I could never understand all this depth and drama about the fact that we live because our elders die. The one time I saw the full-length Hamlet 
I itched to march on stage and punch him square in his powdered jaw. Stop shrieking and kill or run! I couldn't wait for my father to die because the chair was wicker and wicked uncomfortable. My mother was quite a bit younger than him, the typical old politician and young beauty queen, and she was equally bored, although she covered it better with random sniffles, but I swear she played sad songs on the radio to help her mimic grief better. Even my father was bored and would have hit fast forward if he could. When you know someone is going to die, just making them comfortable can feel like a slow boat ride to eternity. (sighs) My father and I only found value in mentorship. He had great instincts. He knew how to dominate a room with a smile and a stare. His will was like a glacier. Cold, slow-moving, and irresistible. There was an old cartoon when I was a kid. A caveman looking up at a huge wall of ice saying to another caveman, Say, is that wall of ice closer today? That was my father. He powdered gold and pulled it on the underside of his will, smearing it along the sewage tracks of backroom politics. Oh, his scratches were legendary. He once waited 41 years to pay back a woman who voted against him. It's not about her. It's about everyone watching, he growled in low-rent satisfaction. He taught me how to overcome odds, overcome obstacles, overcome wills and personalities, how to find weaknesses and chisel-widen hypocrisy, how to use the the power of the intelligence agencies to gather information on enemies, secure in the certainty that everyone has a weakness, everyone has a flaw, everyone is desperate to keep something silent. Find that. You own them. (laughs) He taught me how to be upfront with your weaknesses, to publicize your demons, to ask for forgiveness so you would never have to ask for permission. The devil looks like the devil, son. That's why he can never be blackmailed. (laughs) People love a rogue. They love a sinner who redeems. The only thing they care about is confidence, which (laughs) they mistake for competence. Oh, my God, he would laugh. Most people live lives so petty that any greater man looks like a god to them. If you don't attack yourself... You are bulletproof. Critics who can't find purchase just find other targets. They're terrified of weakness. That's why they bully. So never appear weak. and They'll leave you alone. Oh, he taught me everything there was to know about climbing the backs of the broken. And I loved him for it in my way. He found value in watching me rise. And I found value in his advice. Ah, but I was young. Still in my 30s. Death meant almost nothing to me. But you can't overcome death anyway, so 
What did he have to teach me about? Watching him fade and fall. Powerless to resist, let alone win. was terrible. Because he had no utility for me anymore. This wasn't a foe he could teach me to beat, so what the hell did we have to talk about? I was terrified that he would ramble about his past, dig up old scores, demand I fight some abstract battle, fall into his second childhood of early memories, and call me by the name of some pet raccoon he domesticated at the age of five. I was terrified that he would be terrified, and that that might bleed the jugular of my heart ambitions. What was the point of it all, son? I wrestled and won and fought and bled and died a thousand deaths and pushed well-armed words to create a maze of control in the nation. And here I am, just where I started, in a bed I can't get out of with a goddamn diaper on. Don't do what I've done, son, Don't you live your life for power and control and others. Don't imagine that all the ink you stack on people's necks will mean a damn thing at the end or anywhere near it. Don't marry an idiot for her beauty. Don't leave your children to cast the spells of law over a compliant population. All this I have learned too late, but not too late to save you. Oh, and then he would force a promise out of me to be a good father, a good friend, a good man, everything that he was not. <laughs> Having pushed me off a cliff, he would now demand that I flap my arms and reverse course. Sorry, Dad. Patriarchal physics don't flip for death. But none of that happened. We played cards. He complained about the nurses, studiously avoided imaginary plans for later, and demanded every detail of my newly minted political career. He was still determined to give me advice and worked hard to break up my go-nowhere relationship. I listened outside the door, unembarrassed by security, as he talked with my mother, wondering if he had any greater depth than his decay. But it was nothing. There was nothing. He told her about some secret accounts, hidden laptop with Bitcoin, recommended several boyfriends for down the road, and told her to play Shine On You Crazy Diamond at his funeral. He also told her exactly who not to invite Ed will want to be there. Screw him. He missed the shot that could have made me a pro tennis star. Dig up Maribel. She might still be alive. She was a hell of a babysitter. It taught me stuff I still use on you. That should be celebrated. Often overlooked. And use my prom date picture at my reception. The one with the hot German girl. You can cut her out. But that was the last time I had great hair. He gave lists of reporters to Ghost and recommended his college roommate for his biography. His mind was sharp until the end, unlike his father, my grandfather, 
who foamed at the mouth and regularly believed that his pajamas were on fire. Hell, life has been so busy. We got the will done. So much to do. I kept the papers from Panama, even though I wasn't supposed to. Have the lawyer look at them. Burned them, probably. I also wrote some of a stupid autobiography a few years ago. Toast that. <coughs> Don't let any stupid secrets spill out. <coughs> he gave keys and locations for secret storage facilities, passwords to various accounts and lockboxes, and kept demanding that she remember everything, write down nothing. Nothing is encrypted. Try to only speak to people at the beach or swimming pool. No phones. It was endless. It reminded me of when I hit an armadillo with my dirt bike once as a kid, and as it died, its curled-up body opened up, its legs widening like a slowly yawning mouth. As he died, his secrets flew free. Because my father's wishes mostly involved grudges. My mother had no trouble remembering them. But then, in my dream, I opened up like an armadillo. Because it was like hearing a song on the radio that you used to love and found you loved still. In my dream, in a long-lost hospital room buried under five centuries of dust, age, and catastrophe, my father gripped my arm. Five cards lay on his chest like red-patterned Moroccan tombstones. Son, son, he said, I've lived a good life. It's all been worth it. And I know you hate this stuff. <coughs> I've been avoiding it, but I'm shutting down. I'm going to start singing Daisy, Daisy. <coughs> I had a good career. I made it more than halfway, but but you, you can't remember the name of any senators from Rome. You remember a few emperors, <coughs> the military leaders, the, the philosophers, and and no one else. <laughs> I gave up a lot to get to the middle, and that sucks. <laughs> I'm not going to be remembered by many people. There will be a lot of folks at the funeral, but five minutes later, it <clears throat> you'll tell stories about me to your kids. Show them some pictures, I guess. But it won't mean much. They'll have nothing to say to me about to their kids. <laughs> oh. I don't have any stories big enough to last the test of time. I'm no Teddy Roosevelt, no Stalin. He smiled painfully. <coughs> I lived in the middle, where the whole of the donut is. <laughs> Not much competition. And I wish, I wish I had pushed more Either way, either to the top, or to you and your siblings and, and, and your mum. 
it was like the space between the beat. <coughs> you need it for the song, but no one remembers. <coughs> I know it's embarrassing. I know it's ridiculous. But I'm going to actually be on my deathbed, and you better promise me this. Promise me this. His hands gripped me with surprising strength. His monitors beeped, but I could now only feel the silence between the sounds. You give it your all. You hold nothing back, whatever path you take, to the top or to others. Get everything. Power, power pulls you away from people, and I ended up with neither. I'm just a slightly taller tree in the forest. <laughs> Nothing special. And it means go, going invisible to people while you build up your strength. <laughs> I wanted prominence and effect. I didn't build enough of a base, make enough connections, frighten enough good people. If you're going to love people, <laughs> leave power. If you're going to love power, oh, but you can't leave people because you need them. But you all have to swim like salmon in the current to serve power. Everything for the sake of the God we serve, <coughs> capitals or not. And for God's sake, have them turn that morphine drip up. I can still feel my toes. And so he rambled into incoherence. Strangely powerful words lighting up my consciousness like a falling strobe light lost in deep water. And he died. His mind like a city struck by a meteor, glowing and dark and dead all at once. And I distinctly remember trying to pry his hand from my arm, almost giggling as I imagined sawing it from his wrist and carrying it with me forever, fingernails bound to bone. And I awoke from the room in my mind to the room around my body, from the deathbed of the past to the living bed of the future. And I could not, for the life of me, remember whether it was a dream of a memory or a memory of a dream. But I knew it was the reason I would never, ever be forgotten. Chapter 40 One deathbed inevitably breeds another, but I was the only one to get away. When I got sick, I knew deep in my bones, because the sickness was deep in my bones, that I would not get away. I've always hated this idea that you can bravely fight an illness. That's all nonsense. You just cross your fingers and hope that somehow you can escape the collapsing masonry of mortality. Doctors don't care. Even if you were famous, a president, you're just another flesh suit on their conveyor belt to the grave. It's the end of your life, 
It's just another 10 minutes on their rounds. I don't blame them. You have to cauterize your nerves in the face of everyone else's needs. It's the only way to stay sane. Power is the ability to bestow gifts. When doctors lose to death, they can't give you anything, so they run. When I was little, I saved up to buy a double album of War of the Worlds. This is the only way you could hear music in those days. And I was thrilled to get it. I wanted to practice talking like Richard Burton. I was so excited. But the indifferent, bland cashier at the record store didn't care, even though it was expensive, even though I was just a kid. She just rung it up, snapped her gum and said, Next! What you love, no one cares. They're too busy loving their own stuff to notice yours. It was a good lesson. <sighs> My doctor, knowing his job was done, was brusque and indifferent. Like when my wife went to the hospital with a miscarriage. It was a disaster for her. It was just triage for them. No one cared. He handed me over to my family as quickly as possible. <sighs> my middle son, the athlete, was a pious cliché saying that death comes to everyone, that I was going to a better place, that we would meet again. But heaven would be hell for me, I said. Why? No elections. The top job is already filled. <laughs> it was blasphemous. I always enjoyed shocking his delicate, soulful sensibilities. My daughter, the youngest, which was useless as boobs on a bill, full of tears and unspecified regrets. <sighs> My colleagues, well, they sent notes, or at least their assistants did, but I wasn't expecting anyone to show up, and I wasn't disappointed. I had no more to offer them than the doctor had to offer me. They just wanted to move on to my replacement and start massaging his feet. Who is supposed to remember you when they can't profit from you? I have enough integrity to not blame everyone for exactly what I did. My wife, well, her place in society was secure. Her finances rock solid. And she was young and pretty enough to take a second lap. And she kept reminding me that she had prepared for this day for decades, knowing how much older I was. That's funny, because you desperately want to hang on to life when you're well. But after a certain span of sickness, you kind of get ready to go. It's like when I was a kid, I loved going to airports and flying on planes. But the excitement wore thin pretty quickly, and by the time I became an adult, I just took pills to knock myself out. I hated the discomfort, headaches, and numb buttocks. Even when I got my own plane, I still hated it and breathed a prayer of relief when the wheels touched the ground again. I had been flying high my whole life. I was uncomfortable, and comfort was not returning, so I was ready for the end. It was my eldest son who told me how to escape death.
He told me about Walt Disney and others who had frozen themselves before dying. It was ridiculous, but it began to worm its way into my consciousness. An escape hatch, a deus ex machina that could skyhook me out of my inevitable descent. It's fine to have acceptance when there's no hope, no option. But to give up when escape is possible is not a wise surrender to the inevitable, but a cowardly collapse in the face of the possible. It's not just for you, Dad, he whispered in the dark. Imagine being able to talk to George Washington, King Arthur. It's almost a responsibility to the future, to the historians to come. And you would get a chance to actually shape your own legacy, to answer questions, to not be a piñata of future blame. You would be a window into the world that is, to the world that is to come. And who knows? It might not just be you. My brother might be right. Maybe we will all meet again. And you are not so old. Who knows how long people might live in the time to come? And old age might not be like it is now. It could be anything. Youth reinforced. I think you owe it to yourself, to us, to the future, and our legacy. I'll sleep easier at night knowing that we might have a chance to polish our name in the future. Why surrender when you can escape? The whispers went on and on, even when I'm pretty sure he thought I was asleep. But they wore me down, or rather aroused my hopes. I felt a draw in my mind as I veered off the train tracks leading down to nothing. I left it in his hands. He proved a cunning offspring, as was fitting. It was all a secret. Cryptocurrencies changed hands. Decades-long conspiracy theories gained potent fuel. And I chose the time of my own demise. I no longer tried to make my peace, but rather planned my resurrection. I was frozen with Bitcoins and gold. I went to death with my disease. And only one of us would win in the long run. And that last night, before the switch was thrown and I was dethroned from circulation, my eldest sat hunched beside my bed, constantly flipping back his annoying bangs. I was totally bored at my annoyance toward him. It was an old and utterly predictable ache, like an old man's arthritis before a storm. He had reformed himself under my blows, hardened like metal under fire, remade in the dented impression of my infinite image. And he was doing well in the blood-oiled machinery of power. He had moved from grad student to software entrepreneur, and his future looked as bright as a nuclear sunrise. He had married just the right kind of woman, pretty and calculating, 
humble and dominant, benevolent and implacable. She was pregnant now. It was a race between the grave and grandfather, won now by the willed glacier of undeath. I was <sighs> frightened, perhaps for the first time, that I would somehow feel the ice enveloping me and feel chilled in a bloodless embrace for centuries, <laughs> like my mother's womb. I remember the first time I put my hand in snow, how unbelievably cold it was. And I had a recurring nightmare as a child that I was lying in a coffin with concrete being poured over me, hardening me into trapped immobility forever. But, of course, I reasoned with myself. If I felt cold with no blood, it was equally probable that I would feel trapped in a coffin as well feeling the maddening tickle of hungry worms and the buckle of the wooden walls as the spreading tree roots slowly pushed through. I might catch the occasional scent of flowers as my wife pursued the photo op of leaving roses on my headstone. <laughs> and I might also be disinterred for some court case, some trial. And then I would be like the seashells I collected as a boy, which smelled and rotted and were thrown out by my mother. I would dig up the shell from the sand, which was just broken shells, really, and think of all the billions of shells deep underground, below the beach, below the ocean, below the land, and imagine how blinding it must be for a shell buried for a million years to be washed up into sunlight and have life on its calcium again, my fingers instead of a crustacean. And I remembered being far from my family, just smudges and shadows in the middle distance, isolated under the blue bowl of the sky and the crawling covers of the waves. And I remember yearning for solitude on a solitary planet, People overwhelmed me. That was the truth. I had to control them because they overpowered me. One of us had to get lost and it was never going to be me. And an old childhood joke flowed through my mind. If you break your legs climbing those rocks, don't come running to me. And I could have happily dissolved that day, broken into shards like the shells beneath my toes, and joined the cycled billion-year march of broken life from sunlight to seafloor, round and round, the useless bits of useless bodies swirling like the scarves of a magician beyond loss, beyond fear, beyond desire. And I wanted to walk into the ocean that morning to join the cracks of crabs and the waste of the dolphins. And I played with it. Nothing too serious. I walked up to my chest and felt the thuds of the waves against my face. And that felt personal, like Poseidon was slapping me to turn me back. And I waited for 
life to meet me, to erupt within me and turn me back to the land. Because I suddenly wasn't sure if I was going to enjoy my life or even be good for the world, which struck me as an entirely different category, alien almost. (laughs) But it turns out it is not the dead relatives that beckon you forward, but the live ones who pulled you back. I wasn't serious. I wasn't going to drown. I was just waiting for something to to, to turn me back. Something to turn back for. I can't remember what happened that day. I only remember what happened next, though I have not thought of it in close to 600 years. A hand grabbed my neck and yanked me up. Not back, but up like a savage hook-footed spider. I was pulled to shore faster than the waves could push me, and my father loomed over me, easily eclipsing the sun, and he punched me in the face, then slapped me side to side, and I remember the light getting brighter and darker through the orange kaleidoscope of my closed eyes. And I remember tasting blood and thanking him my way, because he was the life that brought me back. He was my reason for standing on land. He cared enough to, don't do it, he kept repeating, and it was ambiguous, it was confusing, to do what? I was being beaten by the sea, what was I supposed to stop doing in that moment? I wasn't resisting, I was praising because he might have genuinely saved me from whatever hypnotic song was far out at sea. What was I not to do? Uh, Embarrass him, of course. Shame him. Confront him with anything he might have done wrong. Kill his career by killing myself, perhaps. And maybe he did only care about the effects of not me, myself. But you can't be overly picky in this life. And here was someone who cared about me enough to race into the salt and pull me from the undertow of a momentary weakness. And he would not let me dissolve into the tide, into stupid ideas, into anger and ridiculous protest. And for what? I mean, everyone has these moments where you think of turning into oncoming traffic or taking one step too far off a cliff edge or jamming a nose trimmer into your eye. That is the devil of mortality at work, reminding you of your well-being through imaginary drive-bys. It was nonsense, but... I remember the pounding satisfaction as he hit me. That he had noticed me gone, somehow spied my black head among the waves, divined my devilry and sprinted to save me. The lesson went on too long. We both knew that. 
but the bloody intimacy of the instruction was hard to set free. My face was a mess. Cleaning it with the bitter seawater was sweet agony. And my father held my hand as we walked back to the picnic. He explained that I had body surfed into a rock. And I have always appreciated lies that tell the truth. And I was taken to the hospital. And I kept that secret forever. I meant something. I was something. Someone cared. And my mother seemed to believe it. And I would occasionally wonder whether you could see one smudge trying to disassemble another smudge in the bright beach distance. But curiosity always leads to disaster in relationships, so she just skated on the frosting and let the cake be, so to speak. And I told my story with pride at school about surfing into an outcrop, and my scars and stitches were much admired and I gained great status with the courage of my fortitude. And I realized that whatever wounds you elevates you. And I thanked my father again in my mind for the gift he had given me of caring and superiority. Bravery is just a kind of gratitude. And I was deeply grateful. I pitied the boys without fathers. And as I was pulled from the sea by my father, so I was pulled from my dream by Cornelius. He entered my hospital room with a piece of paper. Hard copy, old school, he said. Good morning, the charges are in. I sat up in my bed. I felt my face instinctively to remind myself that my wounds were dead. My, <clears throat> my dream was done. It's a shock, said Cornelius, but I don't think a bad one. Do you need a moment? No. Okay. It is one count of child abuse. I waited. No, that's it. I laughed. <laughs> what? What about all that trash talk at the restaurant yesterday? My infinite crimes, Nuremberg wars, debts, indoctrination. Now I'm accused of abusing my son, my eldest? Cornelius nodded. Oh, my God. You absolute wimps, I cried. What the hell does a man have to do around here to catch a war crime? Cornelius said, I have trouble knowing when to take you seriously. <laughs> this is like dinging Hitler for kicking his dog. Let's keep that analogy private. <laughs> sure, sure. So <laughs> I'm going to be judged for parenting in a fairly typical manner for the time. And that's going to be, <laughs> that's the entire axe hanging over my neck, this little toothpick. Cornelius pursed his lips. Well, it is the most serious crime in our society. Discipline. Oh, I know, I know. Hitting children. That's the most serious crime? Well, that's how crime was eliminated, by not hitting children. 
I paused, my mind racing. What are the punishments? Restitution or ostracism. No DRO will enforce any contract for an unrepentant child abuser. I don't know what restitution means in this case. Well, that is... That depends on the circumstances. I'm sure you will gain some excuse for history and the fact that there were no mandatory scans for your children. Give me an idea. It's the most serious crime. What are the consequences? It's kind of unprecedented. I know. I'm paying you by the hour. Stop beating around the bush. Well, in the past, child abusers often made apologies, made restitution, sometimes money, sometimes charity, and a few of them have been sentenced to spreading the message of peaceful parenting in statist societies. <laughs> so, no hanging? You know this? And still made comparisons to Nuremberg? I'd fire you if I had a clue what the hell was going on. I'm not going to be locked up? No firing squads? Just, what? I have to go do missionary work among the unwashed about not yelling at your children? Oh my god! I'm so glad I didn't waste any anxiety on this clown show of a society. I'm glad you're taking this well. This is a walk in the park. Well, good. I paused. And I don't know the rules of these laws of yours in any great detail, but it's all just... It's going to be hearsay, isn't it? Not even that. I never talked about that. How does anyone know other than the possible... Effects. Apparently, your eldest son wrote an autobiography after your death. You're freezing, I mean. So? I assume it ended up in the fiction section. He was always resentful. Loved to trash me at every opportunity. Although he always traded on my name. That was his leg up the weasel. Cornelius said, I know this is just between us, but you might want to drop that habit. Oh, don't worry. I can play the dutiful father. Don't do that either. That is a weakness of our defense, that you knew how to parent well in public. I waved my hand. Okay, okay, the Aristotelian mean it is. But this is great news. I do my time, which isn't even time, and I'm free to rejoin society as I see fit. Cornelius nodded. But it won't be hearsay. Well, I get to interrogate his autobiography? They have a witness. My face froze. The implications went scurrying in every direction like cockroaches under a sudden searchlight. A witness? What do you mean? Like some recording? Some video? That might be evidence, but it's not a witness. A witness would... And suddenly, I knew... My son, whispering to me about immortality, saying we would meet again, that I would not be alone. My son. Cornelius looked surprised. He gestured at the piece of paper. That's what they claim. He was found shortly after you. He he went through the same procedure. Oh, my God, I whispered. And as if no time had passed, 
I hated him all over again.